So if you've turned to Exodus chapter 11 um, with me, I want to just open up by talking a little bit about the fact, uh, the need to remember. I mean, we set dates in our life for the purpose of remembering, whether it's 9-11 and uh, 2001, that tragic day where we all look and we, and we remember because, because of the significance of that, of that moment. Um, the, we, we know where we were. Every year, um, America rallies around that day, and they remember that day. Memorial Day is a day of remembrance. Um, July the 4th is a day of remembrance. Juneteenth, June the 19th is a day of remembrance. And all of these days have reasons for their remembrance. July 4th being Independence Day, um, Juneteenth being the day that, 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 that black folk in this country uh, were finally declared or, or, or finally made free and not just simply declared um, because there was a declaration, of course, in the Emancipation Proclamation, but then there was some time after that. And so Juneteenth is the day that, that many African Americans all across the country celebrate as the day that black folk were freed in this country. Um, and of course, Memorial Day is a day in which we think about, um, think about those that we've lost in battle. 9-11, obviously, I've already spoken of. But then there are personal days, right? There is, there is our birthdays. There is our anniversaries, days that we, we celebrate and we remember. And the reason why is because we don't want to lose the significance of these moments. We don't want to let the significance uh, slip through our fingers, slip through our mental grasp, if you will. And so we keep coming back to them. We keep coming back to the anniversary because we want to remember how important and how vital our marriage is that God has blessed us with. We keep coming back to our birthdays because we want to remember how, how, how glorious and what a blessing it is to have another year of life on this earth. And then we have all of these American holidays that we keep coming back to because we want to thank, be able to thank God for the grace and the mercy in which he's given us to bring us this far in this country. So days are for remembrance, but remembrance in the sense of establishing importance and establishing a sense of reverence for God and a sense of thankfulness to God. And so as we think about this day, this day, believe it or not, in Jewish history is a day of remembrance. Year after year after year, they come back to this day to remember the day of Passover or the Passover. They want to reflect. They want, to, they want to remember God's grace in this moment that we are about to read about in Exodus chapter 11. And I think the Passover teaches us several things, helps us remember several things. Three of those things I want to talk about this morning. Number one, it helps us remember God promises. The Passover helps us remember that God promises. But the Passover also helps us remember that God prepares. Passover helps us remember that God promises and God prepares, but the Passover also helps us remember finally that God performs, that he promises, that he prepares, and that he performs. When we look at chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, we hear of God promising. And if you read that with me, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This, 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 this final plague, this final act of God 
demonstrating power in a profound way over all the little g-gods that Egypt has, has, has put before him. This final act is, a, is an act in which um, is going to obviously be deliverance for one group of people, but great judgment for another group of people. And so God promise, his promise here is moving in two different directions. On the one hand, there is a group of people that this promise this is, a, is a promise of salvation and deliverance. And they don't have to do anything really but act in faith in order to receive this promise. But on the other hand, this for the, for the people of Egypt, this is a promise of wrath and of judgment. And they can't do anything but act in faith in order to stop it or avoid it. You got one group that doesn't matter what they, they, they don't have to do anything but embrace it by faith. You got another group that no matter how hard they try to avoid it, they can't do anything except embrace it by faith. And should they embrace it by faith, obviously they would have such judgment turned from them. But as we read and as we all know the story, this is what they refuse to do. When you, look at, when you look at this final plague, God will be completing the work of deliverance that he set out from the very beginning. Not because Pharaoh has conceded, mind you, but because God simply has decreed that it shall be. God controls this story. He controls the moment in which Pharaoh will drive Israel away. But he not only controls the moment that they will be driven out of Egypt, he controls the manner in which they will be resourced on their way out of Egypt. In verse 2 it says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So God is saying they are not just going to drive you out at a time in which I am commanding them basically to deliver you, but they are going to resource you with the resources that I command them to resource you with. Here, he, here God is showing us how much, in, how much in control he is of this moment. Early in the story, all the way back in chapter 3, he promised this very thing to Moses. He said in chapter 3, verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for, the, and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. He said this from the very beginning, and now he is revisit, revisiting his promise and saying, now it's time. It's time to collect. In chapter 11, we are seeing the fulfillment of the Lord's word from chapter 3. Here's what we can take confidence in, saints. We can take confidence that in God's promises, there is safety. There is security. There is provision. We can trust God and take him at his word when he speaks. 
We can take confidence that God will indeed take care of his own. What was required of Moses and Aaron and Israel to see these promises fulfilled? Nothing. But simply their trust. Their trust that God would move when they obeyed him. This is the story of our salvation, by the way. Too many times when we come to God with a we come to God with a checklist of prerequisites that we believe must be met in order to ensure our deliverance, not realizing that everything that we possibly need for salvation and deliverance is already wrapped up in Him. He will provide. Our only prerequisite is to simply take him at his word and act with trusting confidence in what he has spoken. That obviously applies to the saving of our souls, but it also applies to any area in our life in which God has spoken. God promises that he will care for us and take care of us. And in order to receive that promise, we simply have to take him at his word with trusting obedience. When you think about God's promises to us, not only do you think about salvation, but you think about provision. Remember in Matthew 6, he says what? He says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Trust God. Take God at his word. He will provide. He will care. He will take care of you. When you think about his promises, not only do you think about salvation and provision, but ongoing sanctification. God says, for I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord, Jesus Christ. I know sometimes there are moments where, where it doesn't seem like this sanctification is going gonna, is gonna to happen. I know there's moments and times where you get sick of just making the same mistakes over and over again, and you wonder to yourself, am I even saved? Keep doing these things over and over and over again? But God has spoken. This promise is not based on your ability. This promise is based on the one who, the one who reigns over you the one who has called you, the one who has empowered you with, his, with the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, the promise will come to pass. God will deliver. God will provide. God will sanctify if we simply take him at his word. Now, on the flip side, there's promises here also that flow in a different direction. And it's promises of wrath and judgment. When you hear, for example, in Exodus 11, chapter 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, at about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Devastation is about to descend upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Devastation is about to descend because of their prideful rebellion. Their sinful, ex, uh, sinful exploitation is being stored up 
or sto is storing up rather wrath. And they are about to pay a grave cost. God promises that judgment is coming. But notice there are no more warning shots. In the first nine passages, Moses would come and he would say, let my people go that they may come, I mean, that they, that, that they may come and worship me. Here there is no warning shot. There is no, Pharaoh, you need to let the people go. There is just simply the, the judgment. It's coming now. And there is nothing, again, that Pharaoh can do to stop what's coming. Because it is God, the all-powerful God, who is bringing it. There is no more pleas that are being made. This last act is a definitive one. The devastation, however, will not only be definitive, but it will be comprehensive. It will touch every single soul in Egypt. That the only people that will be spared are God's people that have trusted him. The firstborn of Pharaoh's house, the firstborn of the slave, the firstborn of the cattle. In other words, from the, from the richest to the, to the poorest, every single person will be touched by this judgment. Because they are corporately complicit in this rebellion, in this exploitation, in this sin. You know, sometimes our sin and our rebellion can lead us to falsely believe that we are getting away that we are getting by God. Some of us refuse and push back on God and push back on God and push back on God. And he gives us countless warning after warning after warning telling us to come, come, come to Christ, come to Christ, embrace Jesus. And we keep telling ourselves, oh, no, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, I got time or all this or all that. But family, no matter how much control you feel like you have over your life, Trust and know that God's judgment and wrath is indeed real. And you cannot impose him forever and think you will go unscathed. Here's what we know. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an inescapable truth. We will all bow. We will all confess, whether we want to or whether we don't, we will all bow and we will all confess. Which will you be? Will you be the one that is forced to bow? Or will you be the one that willingly has accepted and embraced Jesus Christ and willingly bows before the Lord of the universe? Like the Passover, this is a promise that you can take to the bank. When judgment comes, it will come, and it will be comprehensive, and it will, it, will, it will be swift, and it will be deadly. So God makes declaration of, this declaration of promise, promise of salvation and rescue and deliverance, and promise of judgment, promise of wrath, and they're both sure to come to pass. But then God begins to make preparation. In, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, we hear these words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you. The beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year for you. And so the first order of business for God as he prepares his people for what's to come is to reorient their entire calendar around this moment. 
is to reorient their entire history around this moment. The beginning of the year is being recreated. He's saying, this is the beginning now. This is the beginning of your year, and this will be the beginning of your year from henceforth. God is centering himself more prominently in the story of his people. Basically, he's saying, as your deliverer, I should be preeminent in all thoughts, in all celebrations, in all affairs, in all decisions, all the way down to your calendar. Put me first. God is declaring, when I deliver you, reorient everything in your life around me and my deliverance of you. Has that been our testimony in our own story of salvation? Have you made a deliberate commitment to reorient everything around this God and his deliverance of you? To make him preeminent in your thoughts, in your celebrations, in your affairs, in your decisions. Not only does he prepare Israel with a calendar shift, but he also prepares Israel with, with, with a discussion about the lamb. The lamb is being prepared for this moment. Verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, this new month in which we are reorienting around God, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. I love this subtle provision that God is making, this, this subtle arrangement where he says, if the lamb is too much for a household, then bring another household and share the lamb. Don't waste any of this. Don't create more excess waste, rather. And then we read in verse 5, it says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So we have the lamb comes from uh, that's selected on the 10th day, then on the 14th day, continuing when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in this new first month of the Jewish calendar, they were to find a lamb without blemish, a, a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, and on the, 10th, on the 10th day they find it, and on the 14th day they slay it. This was because the lamb was intended to be a reflection of God's holy and righteous standards. A lamb without blemish. A spotless lamb. Our God is perfect and he is flawless in judgment. And so the lamb prepared must be without blemish as well. The Lord would accept no other kind. In fact, later on in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we hear, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which a blemish or which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is, is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the lamb was a reminder of our inability to save ourselves. We are not without blemish. The lamb reminds us that we are without, not without blemish. We are not spotless. The lamb reminds us of this. We need someone who is perfect to take our place or we, and become a sacrifice on our behalf, one that is suitable for the holy and righteous standards of God. 
Look at verse 7. It says that they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it. Its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. God had a very, very God had very particular requirements for this moment of deliverance. All the way down to the way the meal is being prepared. No raw lamb, no boiled lamb, only roasted lamb. The bread must be unleavened, the herbs must be better, and when they Eight, uh, verse 11, uh, or when they ate, verse 11 tells us they were to be fully dressed, ready to leave quickly. The entire meal was intended to speak to God's deliverance that was about to happen. The bitter seasonings were to serve as a reminder of the bitterness of their captivity. The unleavened bread and being fully dressed for the meal was intended to serve as a reminder that their deliverance would come quickly and they needed to be ready at an instant. However, the most important verse in this, in this, in this, in this text here is in verse 7, taking the blood of the lamb and applying it to the sides and the top of the door of their houses in which they had the meal. What's happening here? Well, the Lord explains in verse 12. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood was a sign. God says. The sacrifice was being made and atonement was being established through the lamb. Every door where the blood of the lamb was posted was passed over, Passover. The blood of the lamb became a tool for our deliverance. On the flip side, every door that did not have the blood posted was met with judgment in an un unthinkable grief. Now, understand something about the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The blood on the doorpost shows us that none were innocent when the destroyer arrived. Israel was not innocent. Egypt was not innocent. You see, the, the destroyer did not pass over the homes of the Israelites because they were so righteous and so great and so phenomenal and so innocent. Oh, they're so good, I'll pass over. That's not why he passed. The destroyer passes over the house because the blood is on the doorframe. That's why the destroyer passes. He passes because the blood of a spotless lamb had been placed on the doorpost. 
Their own righteousness is not what separated them from Egypt. Their faith in Christ that caused them to apply the blood of this spotless lamb on their doors. The faith in God. When they said, if God has said it, we must obey. And thus they operated in faith by placing the blood on the doors. That's what brought them deliverance. If you are a Christian here today, then then I hope this is reminding you of a very important truth for us as well. This is our testimony. The Passover is supposed to remind us of our own salvation. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says in chapter 5, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter in chapter in, 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 in chapter 1 of his first epistle, verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Remember John the Baptist. When Jesus arrives on the scene and he's approaching John, in chapter 1, verse 29, John shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we look at the Passover, we should see Christ. He was the spotless Lamb, the ultimate spotless Lamb. That through his, through his own ordered divine providence was slaughtered on Passover. He was literally slain on Passover. Why? Because he was the Passover lamb. Like the lamb that was roasted whole. His bones were not broken. And the blood that was shed from his body brought salvation to those who trusted his work. Russell Moore says, does it remind you that the death angel is coming for us too in talking about the exodus? If the Lord waits, we will all be placed in the ground. We aren't gods. But what the gospel reminds us of is that we're passed over. So even as we eat and drink in this life, we keep our shoes on. We recognize the people we belong to. And when we finally stand in judgment, we don't come cowering in fear. We come marching triumphantly to Zion right through that door, that narrow little door that everybody, great or small, must pass through if we would be redeemed. And it's the one with blood all over it. That's the gospel. Yes, the way is narrow. But the door in which we must enter has been painted with the blood of Jesus. And so we can go confidently through that door. The Passover reminds us that God promises us deliverance. The Passover reminds us that God makes preparation for our deliverance. But also and lastly, the Passover reminds us that God is faithful to perform our deliverance. When you look at verse 29, it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the, ca- of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. What a, turn of, what a turn of affairs has taken place. The great Pharaoh now begging his once, his once captive people to leave and asking them to bless him on the way out of the doors. Does anyone remember the beginning of the Exodus story? We've covered it together. We've walked through this now some, for a few weeks. Does anyone remember how the beginning of this started? It started with Israel growing and increasing in number, and Pharaoh saying we must do something, and thus Pharaoh doing what? Institute, instituting slavery. And then once the slavery was instituted, the number continued to increase, and so Pharaoh did what? He said, we got to do something else. Kill all the male infants that come forth. You remember that? Now look at what has happened. There's been a reversal of judgments. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The slaughter of male infants. His ambition to play God has led to judgment from God. In fact, this judgment that he is, that, that, that God is rendering in this moment was a judgment that he spoke of from the very beginning. He said this in chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God promised God performed. This act of judgment was a long time in the making. The Bible says in chapter 12, verse 40, that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. Many of those years were in chains and bondage. Many of those years, it appeared probably that God was not listening, that God would not respond, that God would not answer. Many of those years were probably, they were probably mocked. They were probably teased. They were probably laughed at in their great misfortune. And then in, in an instant, in a day, everything changes. Everything changes. No saints of God, if you think about your own lives, I know sometimes you probably wonder to yourself, man, what, what is going on? What is going on? How, how long is God going to take to move? And the simple answer to that is, I don't know. But here's what I do know, that one day he will move. And when he does move, it will be tremendous to behold. It's the same thing that I think about when we think about the coming of Jesus. You know, there's many people, what? You know, we don't even talk about that anymore, right? It's like, eh, it's a little, you know, I almost feel a little embarrassed to talk about Jesus coming back. No, no, no. One day he will. And when he does, 
it will be spectacular to behold. Reminds me of Noah in, in Noah's day, right? Think about how many days Noah was working on the ark. Think about how many people passed by Noah. Chuckle. Pfft, look at this clown. What's he building a boat for? What are you building this big boat for? And then all of a sudden the rain comes. Yeah, in this day many will feel like they are getting away with their wickedness. That there is no God to be found. And there is since, since there is no God to be found, let's eat, drink, be merry, rob, cheat, steal. Why worry? Many may feel like because we haven't seen any judgment, there must be no judgment. The family God is not slow as some of us would consider to be slow. But rather, he is moving at a pace, allowing as many people as possible to come to repentance. He will come. And when he comes, he will judge. And only those who have the blood of Jesus posted across their door, their door frames will be spared. On the other hand, as we think about judgment, we also must think about grace for those who have taken that blood, for those who have put across the doorpost of their heart that blood. God has performed a work of deliverance. God has performed a work of salvation, and God will bring that work to completion in your life. That no matter how hard it appears right now, no matter how many struggles you're facing right now, whether they be, whether they be physical struggles, financial struggles, mental struggles, struggles with sin, struggles with doubt, no matter what you're facing right now, trust and believe that God will fulfill the promises that he has established for you. What do you have to do? You have to continue to remember. Just like the Passover. The Passover brought remembrance. God delivered us. He's de he delivered us then. He'll take care of us now. How do you remember? You remember by picking up your Bible. How do you remember? You remember by gathering with the saints of God weekly. How do you remember? You remember when we take, take uh, Lord's Supper, which we need to do, by the way. How do you remember? You remember when we gather on a Wednesday night together. These are opportunities to remember that no matter how hard it looks and how hard, no matter how hard it appears right now, God has not forgotten about you. That he will bring to pass all the promises that he has established for those who are in Jesus. God will bring to pass all the promises that he has established for those who are found in Jesus. Let's pray.